Let's pray together real quick. Almighty God, you are Lord of all. You are the cornerstone, the center of our life, the author, the beginning, the center of the universe. And Lord, we come to you this morning, and, and God, we need you. We do live in a very dark world, and we're looking for hope, a hope that carries us through difficult times, God, overwhelming times in our own life and times in life in this world. So, God, we turn to you now and open our hearts to you and pray, God, that from your living words, we could find true hope and meaning for our soul. In Jesus' name, amen. So, a mama and a baby camel (laughs) were lying around. When the baby asked his mama a question, Mama, why do we have humps? And the mama said, Well, darling, you see, we're desert animals, and these humps help us store water in the desert. And they're very helpful. We can go for many days without water. Okay, said the baby. But Mama, why do we have these really long legs and round feet? The mama said, well, darling, (laughs) you see, as we walk through the desert, this helps us to walk great distances. As a matter of fact, we can walk better in the desert than any other animal. Okay. But, But mama, why do we have these really long eyelashes? They hurt my eyes. And the mama said proudly, my son, those beautiful long lashes of yours, they protect your eyes from the desert wind and sand. Okay. And the little camel thought for a while, and the baby said, I see. So we have a hump for water in the desert, and our legs are long so we can walk through the desert, and, and we have these eyelashes that protect our eyes in the desert. So, Mama, why in the world are we in the zoo? Have you ever felt like you're a little out of place? You know, we've been talking about this series, Flourish, this beautiful description of how God created us from the very beginning. He created us for relationship because he loves us dearly. He formed us from the breath of his mouth, shaped us with his hands, and nurtured us with his very presence, which was the source of everything that we needed. (laughs) We're made to flourish in harmony with God, with ourselves, and with one another. And we're surrounded with shalom, nothing broken, nothing missing, everything pure, whole, and complete. Well, if you haven't noticed, we're not in Kansas anymore. And as Pastor Ron told us, instead of flourishing, we're floundering. And last week we talked about what happened and why we're in the state that we're in as as Pastor Ron recounted for us the beginning of when mankind rejected everything that God had given him and instead decided to listen to the lying lips of Satan and rebel against God in an attempt to be their own gods. And when Adam and Eve, in their act of rebellion and sin, they set into motion this avalanche 
an entire avalanche which swept the human race downward, bearing us in death. And sin killed connection and brought division. And sin killed wholeness and brought destruction. Sin killed harmony and brought opposition. Sin killed blessing and brought a curse. And just as Ephesians 2.12 explains, mankind found themselves without God, separated, without hope in God in the world. And we're caged in our own bars of brokenness. In death and destruction, in murder and disease, in cancer, in broken relationships, in hopelessness. Sin affects every relationship, everything around us. You see, we've fallen and we can't get up. And yet we can still hear this faint echo, this faint echo of freedom in the garden where we came from. This dormant seed of life calls out to us and we struggle. We say, we look around, we say, this isn't what it's supposed to be. Our hearts ache with this sense of oughtness. Something's wrong. There must be something greater in life, a greater sense or purpose. Let's watch this video together. I've been wrestling with purpose. What was I created for? I'm more than what you see on the surface. See beneath my skin and scars. I'm skinned and scarred. Marred and twisted. Scarred by the past I need to be lifted. And sometimes I question my own existence. What was I put here for? In my seams, it seems that there seems to be more. It's like I'm a light unplugged from the socket. I mean, do I really exist to put money in my pocket? This nine to five feels like a nine to nine. My mind entwined, I pass the time. Life circles me as I wait. What is my estate? I feel like I was made for something great, and yet I can't quite put my finger on it. But when I look at my fingers and I see their design, I realize I'm one of a kind. And something created me. No, someone created me. And that someone made me for a reason. Even though it's clear the past years have been treason, I still sense this drawing, this calling that even in the midst of my falling, there was someone who died to pick me up. Someone who rose to fix me up. Someone who's coming back to lift me up. And that someone is Jesus. See, God made me for a purpose. And when I delight in him, it's brought to the surface. So today I want to talk to you about hope. About Jesus. I want to talk about God's great plan to bring freedom and to restore us. My hope is that you will see and experience God's calling out to you, his hope and his grace so that you'll know that you're loved and that you do have meaning and purpose in your life. So we're going to jump right in. So I encourage you that uh, if you've got your message notes there, why don't you grab them out of your program. And if you have a Bible, you can open it to Genesis. It's the first book. And so you want to move to Genesis 3 there. If you don't have a Bible, um, the verses will be up here on the screens, and I want to encourage you that if you don't own a Bible, make sure you pick one up on the way out. We want to give it as a gift for you. It's out there in the lobby. 
So we're going to talk about how God restores us to hope. And the first point is this, is that he reveals his love for us. God reveals his love for us. Now, Pastor Ron shared last week that our founding parents distorted, denied, and defied God. Now, can I be honest with you? Uh, As a parent, when my kids defy me, let's just say I struggle with that a little bit. That's tough for me. You know, this guy here that brought them into the world, he kind of wants to take them out. Now, before I tarnish my little darling's reputation, my kids are actually pretty good kids, but they do have their moments of defiance, right? And they love to recall times and chuckle about this, about when they would, you know, get a little testy and they'd hear dad's footsteps coming down the hallway and they want to hide under the couch. But thank goodness, you know, my kids had never joined a satanic cult, you know, or completely pushed me out of their life. Or try to take over and push me out of my own house. But isn't that exactly what Adam and Eve did? I mean, they joined forces with Satan. They completely rejected him and sought to be their own gods and usurp him. I mean, bring on the lightning bolts, right? I mean, isn't that what we expect God to do? He's just, smite them, almighty smiter. But God doesn't do that. You know, what's interesting is he doesn't destroy them. He doesn't even walk away. God goes and searches them out. And he speaks to them. And he reveals his love for them. Genesis 3, 7 to 9 says this. At that moment, the moment of sin, their eyes were opened and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. And when the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. And then the Lord God called to the man, where are you? See, God took the initiative to seek them out after they had rejected him, to reestablish a relationship with them. While Satan's questions were pointed to destroy and undermine them, God's questions were purposeful to restore and reconcile them. Where are you? He said. Who told you you were naked? You see, when you sin and you stray away from God, it's important that you carefully consider where you are. (laughs) You need to know that you're far from God and that you're wandering off and that you're lost. And sometimes... It's such a good thing to have a friend that's willing to ask the right questions to help you to see that you're lost. And aren't you glad that God searches for us, even when we're hiding, when we're running from him? Because he is a good, good father, and he loves us. And I'm so glad that God comes looking for me and accepts and does not abandon me when I fall in sin created us for relationship and God's he's committed to that relationship isn't he I mean 2nd Timothy 2 13 says if we are unfaithful he remains faithful for he cannot deny who he is that's who he is second he heals our brokenness he heals our brokenness (laughs) so God steps forward, you know, to call them to face their sin and to be reconciled. And so what do Adam and Eve do? (laughs) Will they deny it? 
they deflect it and they dodge it. You know, their hearts are like Teflon. You know, instead of owning and admitting their sin, they slip into excuses and they pass the blame to others, even to God. <laughs> you know, that's the darkness of the human heart. It refuses to acknowledge sin and strives to exonerate and exalt self. And so in verses 6 to 10, what we see here is Adam and Eve playing the blame game, you know? And it's not such a nice game, is it? In fact, it's incredibly ugly to throw your sin on top of someone else. Our sin seeks self-satisfaction, self-preservation, and self-righteousness. It's sinister. Hebrews 3.13 says that sin betrays us and hardens our heart toward God. So you got to figure at this point, I mean, Satan, <laughs> he figured he's got this whole thing in the bag. He's led this insurrection in heaven and drawn a third of the angels away in rebellion towards God. There's only two humans, and he's got both of them. And they're sinning, they're cloaked in sin and deception. Victory's in his grasp, and he will become God. And I imagine that there's a dramatic pause in this moment. Adam and Eve are scrambling to justify themselves. Satan's ready to pop the champagne. The demons are squealing in evil delight. Pause. And then the sovereign one, almighty God, speaks. And the Lord who casts Satan out of heaven begins to pronounce Satan's final doom. And as he does, he reveals his plan to heal mankind's brokenness. Genesis 3, 14 and 15 says this. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, you are cursed more than all animals, domestic and wild. You'll crawl on your belly, groveling in the dust as long as you live. And I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his head. God tells Satan that there'll be hostility between him and the woman and that her offspring, which is interesting, it's not a plural word like we think about all of us, but it's a singular word. One special offspring from the woman will crush Satan's head and deal a final blow as Satan attempts to strike him. God said it would happen and it did. Satan struck Jesus. Yes, he was the one who orchestrated the crucifixion. But this wound was only temporary, only a strike in the heel. Because the moment that Satan thought he'd finished Jesus off, he'd killed him. <laughs> that actually was the moment that he dealt his own final fatal blow. God's curse on Satan meant that his own son, Jesus Christ, <laughs> would one day become a curse for us to pay for our sin. But then Jesus would rise. He would conquer death, Satan's only power over us. And Jesus would give us victory over sin, over death, over Satan. And Satan's future is certain. He will one day be sent into eternal judgment. Revelation 20.10 says this, then the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. 
joining the beast and the false prophet, there will be tormented day and night forever and ever. See, from the very beginning, the very beginning, God's plan was that the promised one would break the power of darkness and one day restore creation, his people, and his plan. And that one day things would return to shalom the way they were designed to be. Next, to restore us, he extends his grace to us. He extends his grace to us. You ever gone to the refrigerator to find some pickles? (laughs) You look. Where are the pickles? They were just here. Where are the pickles? And then your wife comes along and she pulls them right off the shelf, right in front of you. Here they are. (laughs) They're right in front of your nose. Your senses must be getting a little dill. (laughs) So these next few verses are kind of like the pickle jar for me. I mean, they've been there, but I've never been able really to see them. Been there all along. And I hope I'm not reading into this, but I think there's something incredibly amazing in these next couple of verses. Like I said, I've never seen before. That Adam responds to God's grace with an act of faith. And God responds to Adam's faith with an act of grace. Let's look at it. Genesis 3, 20 and 21. Then the man, Adam, named his wife Eve because she would be the mother of all who live. And the Lord God made clothing from animal skins for Adam and his wife. Now we know that God told Adam and Eve, he warned them, don't eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil or you will die. And sure enough, he told them that death was coming. They knew it. From the moment they sinned, they sensed the separation from God. They spiritually died. They sensed the shame, the the overwhelming sense of sin. And they felt the weight of it, but they heard God say a promise. And that's what I think is really interesting, that it says the next thing that happened is that Adam names his wife Eve, which means life. (laughs) That Adam believed God. He believed that in the midst of death, that life would rise. Adam believed the gospel in its simplest form. And God responded to Adam's faith with undeserved grace, undeserved gift, grace, a gift that symbolized the promise. God showed forgiveness through a sacrifice, through substitutionary blood, in this case, innocent animals who gave their life as a picture representing the coming Savior who would give his life for mankind. God didn't leave him in shame and nakedness. Instead, he clothed the animals. He clothed them with animal skins, the people with animal skins. He provided a covering, and he clothed them with the sacrifice. (laughs) Next, he covers us with mercy. He covers us with mercy. Sometimes I can um, catch myself saying to myself, I just don't deserve this. You ever say that to yourself? I just don't deserve this. So the other day, um, I'm in the dollar store, right? And I imagine that you were there because that day the entire Nevada, Nevada County was in the dollar store. And there were only two checkers. <laughs> and I thought to myself, you know, I just don't deserve this. <laughs> How bad do I want these marshmallow moon pies? I think we overestimate 
<laughs> overestimate what we think we deserve, and we underestimate what we really do deserve. And God is so full of mercy that he spares us from what we really do deserve. You see, mercy, according to the dictionary, is compassion or forgiveness shown to someone with whom it's our power to punish or to harm. When we fail to, often we fail to recognize and appreciate mercy when it's given to us. Genesis 3, 22 to 24 says this. <clears throat> then the Lord God said, look, the human beings have become like us, knowing both good and evil. What if they reach out, take the fruit from the tree and eat it? Then they will live forever. So the Lord God banished them from the Garden of Eden and sent Adam out to cultivate the ground from which he'd been made. After sending them out, the Lord God stationed a mighty cherubim to the east of the Garden of Eden. And he placed a flaming sword that flashed back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, I remember as a kid, my mom had bought us these Bible story books, illustrated ones, a whole set of them. <clears throat> and it was really fun for us kids to sit next to mom as she would tell us these great Bible stories before we could read. And we'd look at the pictures. And I remember there's a picture, you know, of Daniel, and there he is with the lions, and you see David facing Goliath. And then there was this story. And I remember a picture that kind of looked like this. And I'll be honest with you. I remember thinking to myself, you know, that God's kind of afraid that Adam and Eve are going to take over the garden. And so he sends his ninja angels to come take over and throw them out, you know. It's like, don't you come back here or we'll chop you like Julian Fries. <laughs> I mean, seriously, I think I wet the bed that night. It was horrible. <laughs> when we read this story, honestly, at first glance, it doesn't seem much like mercy to us. It really doesn't. But I want to encourage you to look at it through eyes of faith, remembering what God's character is like. Focus your lenses on what we know about God, because what God does here is incredibly merciful. God does not give Adam and Eve what they deserve, which is eternal death. And instead, he protects them and covers them. The tree of life inside the garden was there to sustain life in that perfect environment. And when Adam and Eve sinned and fell, they received a sinful nature, and they began the process of physical death. And had at that moment they then would have taken from the tree of life, they would have been sustained in spiritual separation and damnation for eternity. And instead what God does, he did not want them to live forever separated from him. So he put them out of the garden, away from the tree, to protect them. See, they were sent to a place of toil, but not to torment. He knew that they needed to search out and find happiness and meaning, not in the garden, but in the promised one who would come and restore them. And that leaves us with our last point, which is that God restores us when he becomes our hope. When he becomes our hope. You see, God acts in accordance with his character. He always does. His character dictates what he does. And he doesn't just speak truth. God is truth. He is the truth, the life, and the way. And therefore, when God promises something to us, you need to understand that he binds himself to us in that promise. He doesn't just give us a promise. 
he himself becomes the promise. He doesn't just give us hope. He becomes our hope. 1 Peter 1, 3-5 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. This is so amazing and powerful and incredibly personal. God became the promise. God became flesh. He promised to restore us, and he became our living hope. Jesus Christ, he rescues us from death, and he offers us new life, eternal life with him. He restores our relationship with God. 1 John 1.12 says that to all who believe in him, he gave the right to become children of God. And upon receiving life in Jesus, we receive his spirit inside of us that begins to restore and bring us back to wholeness. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says that we are a new creation in Christ. And we're grafted into this new family of God with brothers and sisters, one another. And the love that we receive from God, we give to each other. Romans 12.5 says that we belong to one another. And ultimately, we look forward to the day guaranteed by the promise of God when all creation will be restored. Revelation 21, 1 to 5 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared, and the sea was also gone. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a beautiful bride dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. And he'll wipe away every tear from their eyes and there'll be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne says, look, I'm making everything new. And when he said to me, write this down for what I tell you is trustworthy and true. Jesus restores shalom, right relationship with him, with ourself, with others, and with the creation that he's given to us. That's our glorious future. But we don't spend today just sitting here twiddling our thumbs and waiting for heaven. We bring the kingdom of heaven here on earth. We are the body of Christ in this world. And as disciples of Christ, we are called to bring shalom to the earth as we wait for our king. See, shalom isn't just an incredible gift, but a most demanding mission. God seeks to rescue lost children who are separated from him. And we have a message. (laughs) We are the message. We're ambassadors of reconciliation. So you ready for your assignment? As we've talked about, next week is Easter. We have a community egg hunt. We've got a beautiful service planned. 
And there are people out there that are just hopping for the chance to be a part of something like that. So I want to encourage you to go invite them. Go invite them. God has given you his grace, his love, his mercy. He's given you living hope. So don't hold back and pay it forward. Let's pray. God, you are our living hope. And I just want to thank you just for reflecting this last week on how from the very beginning, Lord, you have had a plan. And your plan is sure. And we've seen the most important that part of that plan come to pass just as you said it would. And so we know as we look forward and we sit in the middle of that promise, we look forward to the fulfillment of that promise of being with you, of seeing shalom restored, of being in your presence, God, of the reality of heaven. The reality of blessedness, the reality of God, of, uh, of infinity, spent with you in pure wholeness and joy. God, what a picture of great hope. And it all centers on you because you, Lord, are our hope. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, God, for being that living hope for us. May we place our faith, our life, everything that we are in you in that hope. In Jesus' name, amen.